turn with me, if you will, to John chapter 20, as we look uh, this morning at uh, the obvious, the resurrection. It is uh, always a joy to be able to uh, bring God's Word, to open God's Word. It is especially a joy to do so on uh, such a magnificent, important, significant topic. I want to remind you where uh, the disciples have been. It's been a roller coaster week for them at this point. They started just seven days before, the Sunday previous, um, entering into Jerusalem with fanfare. Everybody was happy. Everybody was glad to see them. Everybody was thinking, okay, here we have the Messiah. Here we have the King. Hosanna to the King. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Uh, it could not have been a better day for the disciples as they saw it, as they understood it. And then the week begins. And you have Jesus cleansing the temple. You start to wonder, where is this going? He was supposed to be the king. He was supposed to laud us and, and praise us as his people and, and get us all together and let's all move in the same direction. And the very first thing he does is clear out the temple and correct the people there. And then you have Tuesday, the, the day of debate. Just one question after another from the religious leaders. Everyone is just attacking Jesus left and right. Of course, he handles that with the skill that uh, he has shown many times before, clarity. And then Thursday comes, and you get together, you think you're going to have Passover. You're excited about it. It's, it's a special time. It's a time of remembrance. It's a time of reflection. But while you're there, Jesus does some strange things. He washes everybody's feet. He reinterprets some of the elements of the Passover meal as his body and his blood. And he oddly says, one of you is going to betray me. Peter, you're going to deny me three times. And you go out after Passover across the valley to the Mount of Olives. Jesus goes a little bit further in with the three inner circle. You're praying. He's praying. He's obviously in deep grief. And then the soldiers show up. And they arrest him. And most of you flee in fear over What's to follow? Some of you try and stay close and follow behind him to see what's happening to him, but even in that you find rejection, denial. Then he's hung on the cross. Only one of you's there. And then he dies. 
and you didn't even get to give him a proper burial. This one that you love, this one that you've spent three years investing your life in, this one that has changed everything you've ever understood about truth and reality and life, you can't even get to say goodbye to. And then Sunday morning comes. And that's where we pick up here in verse 1. On the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark. She saw that the stone had been removed from the tomb, so she went running to Simon Peter, to the other disciple, the one Jesus loved, and said to them, They've taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we don't know where they've put him. At that, Peter and the other disciple went, heading for the tomb. The two were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and got to the tomb first. Stooping down, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. Then following him, Simon Peter also came. He entered the tomb and saw the linen cloths lying there. The wrapping that had been on his head was not lying with the linen cloths, but was folded up in a separate place by itself. The other disciple who had reached the tomb first then also went in, saw, and believed, for they did not yet understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples returned to the place where they were staying. But Mary stood outside the tomb crying. As she was crying, she stooped to look into the tomb, and she saw two angels in white sitting where Jesus' body had been lying, one at the head and the other at the feet. They said to her, Woman, why are you crying? Because they've taken away my Lord, she told them, and I don't know where they put him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but he did not know, she did not know it was Jesus. Woman, Jesus said to her, why are you crying? Who is it that you're seeking? Supposing that he was the gardener, she replied, Sir, if you carried away, tell me where you put him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. Turning around, she said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Don't cling to me, Jesus told her, since I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers and tell them that I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced it to the disciples. I have seen the Lord. And she told them, what he had said to her. When you think of that first morning, when you think of these initial events here following the resurrection, we see a lot of people who don't get it still, who don't understand what's going on. Mary initially thinks what? That Jesus' body has been stolen. Peter sees the linen wrappings. But he can't work out what it's all about and what has happened. He, he, he just goes what? He just goes back. Let's just, let's just go back home. The text says they, they didn't understand the scriptures yet. They didn't understand where this was all headed. The, the angel questions Mary, and she still doesn't know what's going on. Then she thinks Jesus is a gardener.
Then she reaches out to cling to him, to grab him, to hug him, and he tells her, you can't do that. Our relationship has changed. You could hardly get more misunderstandings into a couple of paragraphs than if you tried. Everybody's getting it wrong. Everybody's misunderstanding. Everybody's misinterpreting. Nobody knows what to do. Why? Because they're trying to relate to and understand a situation that they had no mental preparation or framework with which to deal with it. This is the first time it has ever happened. This is the first time anything like this has ever occurred, even though Jesus had told them repeatedly that this was what was going to transpire, even though the scriptures had predicted this was how this was going to play out. In their mind, they had no concept of, of how, to, how to put it together, how to, how to arrange it, how to understand it. years ago on YouTube, I, I came across a, a man, his name is Tommy Edison. Tommy was born blind. And um, he said that he credits his mom with never treating him blind for who he is. And who he is is a pretty extraordinary individual. He does a lot of things that you would not expect a blind person to do. He is a famous movie critic. He can't watch the movie, but he can listen to it. And he does his little critics accordingly. But one of the things that I really liked about Tommy and what, what first attracted me to him is, is he likes to talk about how his life is different than a sight, sighted person's life is. And, and how he likes to listen to sighted people describe things and explain things. He says he understands a lot of what's said because people are very good at describing things. He said, but one thing I can't get, one thing I can't understand is color. How do you people, he says, deal with so many different colors? I've had people list the colors for me, and I can't comprehend what they are or how they work together or how it all fits into one reality. It's just hard. It's beyond me, he says. And to be honest, I think that's where the disciples are and, and where we are when it comes to the resurrection. It's hard. We have no way of putting it all together. How do we take something so dramatic, something so big, a man was dead... Dead, dead. And then he was alive. And not only was he alive, he was changed and transformed, and yet still the same body. How do we deal with that? How do we describe that? How do we encapsulate the importance of that? Well, I'm convinced that one of the ways that we deal with that in, in Christianity, sadly, is we minimize it. Because we can't comprehend it, because we can't really describe it, because we can't really relate to it, we take it and we try and wrap it into some nice little 
convenient theological idea or well wish that we express to others. Let me just read some of the, the quotes that I've, I've come across concerning Easter from leaders. And I won't tell you who the leaders are because I don't want to color their quote one way or the other. But these are actual quotes that, that people have, have put out concerning Easter. This year, let's roll away the stone from the tomb of at least one crisis or trauma in our lives. Rise up and move on. So resurrection is getting over a difficulty, getting over some, some hardship. Similarly, that there's always another chance. It may be in the time frame, it may not be in the time frame we expect or in the way we wish, but second chances are always possible. How about this one? No matter what the world may do to you unfairly, no matter how you're crucified, that you can rise if you don't lose yourself during the hard times and the challenges. Now, I'm not saying there's not some truth in those statements, but what I am saying is they're taking a grand, glorious, magnificent reality and they're minimizing it to just some pithy sayings about getting over things or moving beyond things or, or having a second chance at life. It's like saying flowers prove the existence of colors. There is a connection to that truth, but that is an incredible minimization of the truth. And it doesn't call us to anything. It doesn't challenge us to anything. It doesn't do anything for our present situation, ultimately. It might encourage us to, to take that next step, but it doesn't offer real hope. It doesn't offer real change. It doesn't offer real transformation. It doesn't offer life. And I wonder this morning, do you, do I, really understand the real-life implications of Jesus' resurrection? Do we understand how it matters to us now and for eternity? And I want us to understand that this is significant because the resurrection was the focus of the early church's preaching. There are nearly 200 references to Christ's resurrection in the New Testament. 200 times this matter was revisited. 200 times this was discussed, sometimes before the event, mostly after. Jesus said in John eleven twenty five, 25, I am the resurrection and life. He who believes in me, though he dies, yet shall he live. A passage we, we read just a, a few moments ago. What is he saying here? He's saying that the resurrection is the fundamental part of his identity and the fundamental part of his relationship to us. How are we able to connect to Jesus? How are we able to understand Jesus? How are we able to walk with Jesus? It's through the resurrection. It's the key to our salvation. 
Romans 10, 9, Paul writes what? If you confess with your lips that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart, what? That God raised him from the dead, then you shall be saved. The resurrection is essential because it makes a difference. It changes everything. The law of death that we're all subject to, that we all face. Some of you have lost loved ones this year. Some of you carry the weight of lost loved ones still with you to this day, even though it's been many years. Death is so very powerful. Death robs us of so many things. In the resurrection, we have victory. In the resurrection, we have hope. In the resurrection, we have future. I can't cover everything about the resurrection and its implications this morning, but I want to cover three that affect your life on a daily basis right now. The first thing I want to re relate is that the resurrection reveals that humanity matters. In 1 Corinthians 15, as Paul there is talking to the church at Corinth, a church that was um, struggling with individuals within it that denied the resurrection. People who uh, were saying it, it, it wasn't important. People who were saying it didn't happen. People who were saying it's a ridiculous thought that this body would be brought back because they had been raised in a, in a Greek mindset, in a mindset that said that the physical doesn't matter, only the spiritual matters. They brought that into the church and they were beginning to deny the, the physical resurrection. And Paul writes to them, as we read earlier, that if there is no resurrection, Christ is not raised. And if Christ is not raised, then your faith is useless. It's useless. We talk a lot about what church does and the fellowship that we have here and the, the love that we enjoy. And, and all of that's true and all of that's wonderful. But if not for the resurrection, all of that's temporary. All of that's passing. None of that lasts. Paul's point is that Jesus, who is both fully God and fully man, as a man was what? He was brought back to life. He did not shed his humanity in favor of his deity. And in that truth, in that reality, we see what? That humanity matters. That life matters. 
And that has implications in what? It has implications in when does life begin? In terms of the abortion debate. It has implications in terms of how well I take care of this planet. It has implications of if I take care of my body. It has implications of how I treat others. The resurrection shapes our mind and our priorities. One of the things you see expressed and communicated implicitly but not explicitly in, in the New Testament is, is the, the effect of the, the lack of belief in resurrection on the Sadducees. If you're familiar with the, the New Testament uh, parties that are portrayed there, you have the Pharisees, you have the scribes, you have the Essenes, you have uh, the Zealots, and you have this group called the Sadducees. And the Sadducees were the leaders. They were the ones who were tied to the temple. They were the, primarily the priestly group. Very influential, very important, very significant. But one of the beliefs that they maintained was that there is no resurrection. The Sadducees believed that when you die, you simply died. And that was it. And what you see playing out over and over again here in the biblical text, but also in history, is that the Sadducees were very much concerned with maintaining the status quo. That's why the Sadducees were very friendly with the Romans. It was to their advantage to be as friendly and as close as you could to the political entity that controlled your future. That's why the Sadducees were willing to compromise on many Torah precepts and, and other things that you find outlined in Scripture because as long as it maintained what was presently going on, that's what they were willing to do. Why? Because this was all there is. This is all there is. And you see that played out in a society today where you have people who don't believe in an afterlife, who don't believe in a God, and what is their business, what is their role? It's maintaining the status quo. And you have Christians who, who walk that same path. Instead of sharing their faith, instead of investing in the future, instead of getting involved in a church and being a part of it, they're just about the status quo. We go from day to day. We go from minute to minute. We go from action to activity to without really thinking about anything, without really evaluating anything, without considering or counting the cost. Because ultimately, deep down, we don't believe it matters. And the resurrection says it does. Jesus his body resurrected. One day our body will be resurrected. 
And God's word links that resurrection and links that time to what? A new heaven and new earth. A resurrection of this earth. This earth matters. God made it. And he didn't make it just to throw it away. He made it, and he will restore it. He will renew it. He will recreate it. The resurrection proclaims that truth. A second reason that the resurrection matters is that it reveals to us that God is not detached from real life. He cares about life and death. He cares about what you're facing and what you're dealing with. Shortest verse in the Bible is what? It's a reflection on Jesus' reaction to the death of Lazarus. He wept. What more needs to be said about God's disposition toward death? He wept. He experienced the sorrow. He experienced the grief. He identified with us in our loss. And then he brought Lazarus back to life. Foreshadowing of the ultimate act of resurrection both his and ours. And because Christ is resurrected, as we read earlier as well, he, he ascended to the right hand of the Father. Hebrews 2, 14 through 18, talks about how Jesus became man, what? So that he could die in our place, so that he could be resurrected, so that he could, what? Sit at the right hand of the Father to intercede on our behalf. It is an act that helps us to see that the life we live now is indeed capable of experiencing the miraculous. It is the climactic event of the miraculous in Scripture, but we know what, we know what God has done in Christ, and so we know what He will do ultimately one day and what He can do in our life right now. If we can truly buy into the notion of the resurrection, if we can truly accept it, if we can truly begin to comprehend even just a smidgen of what it is, is there any miracle, is there any act, is there any activity that is beyond our faith? If you can believe in the resurrection, is there anything you can't believe in? No, it is the ultimate expression of God's power and his capacity to change the realities of life. The resurrection brings all of prophecy together. When you start to see how God spoke through each prophet, how God acted through each prophet, how God brought all the words of the prophets together, 
we start to see how all of prophecy, all of scripture, all of life feeds into our everyday existence, our everyday life. Not so strange that a man would die a painful, agonizing death when you realize it was part of God's plan from the beginning and you see that played out over the centuries. And if you can understand that, then you can understand that God indeed has a plan for you and your life and your experience and what you're going through. God has a future for you. God has a purpose for you. In his mind, before you were even born, just as the resurrection was in his mind and in his plan before creation even existed. Thirdly, the resurrection proclaims, reveals that Jesus Christ is Lord. Jesus is a judge of the living and the dead. Why? Because he's been both places. Peter disabuses Cornelius of any thought of multiple paths in Acts chapter 10. As he reveals that Jesus is the one way, the one answer, the one solution to all that we have. Why? Because he's the one person who rose from the grave. The world thinks it can attain the Christian vision of a future hope and peace and all those things without the Christian God. It cannot. We read on the, the side of the United Nations building. A quote from what? From the Bible, Isaiah. And they shall beat their swords into plowshares. An ultimate picture of peace. Where we get rid of all our weapons. We, we no longer need our weapons and we turn them into farming utensils. It's a beautiful picture. It's a picture of hope. It's a picture of the future. It's a picture that can only be accomplished by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's not going to be from us getting together and, quote, being reasonable and talking through things. I have nothing against trying to be peaceful. I have nothing against negotiating for peace and, and doing things to, to, to help our life be better here. But the truth of the matter is, without God at the center of it, peace is a myth. Christ is Lord. He's Lord over life, he's Lord over sin. Sin is costly. Sin is powerful. Sin is mighty. But Christ's victory is superior to that sin. God slew his own son and kept him in the grave. Every time we sin, the guilt would be too much. We'd say it's because of sins like this that Jesus is no longer with us. But the resurrection means what? That sin no longer is so heinous that we cannot be forgiven. There's no sin that has kept Jesus in the grave. He rose from the grave conquering all sins. Some of you here today are struggling with some past sin. Something you've done 
that's very foul. That you walk around with a deep weight over. That you don't know what to do with. Let me tell you, you don't have to do anything with it. The empty tomb means that that sin is forgotten and forgiven. Resurrection also tells us that the Lord, that Jesus is Lord over our lives. The reason so many in our churches ignore the resurrection or minimize the resurrection or push it aside in their daily lives is that they want a Savior who forgives sins, but they don't want a risen Lord who tells them how to live it. Give me the get out of jail free card, but don't try and tell me how to live my life. Give me the rescue, but don't give me the responsibility. The resurrection proclaims a process of renewal that began that first Easter and acted in your life as you give your life to Christ and carried out over time as he molds you into what and who you were made to be. I love, love how C.S. Lewis puts this. He says, I think that many of us, when Christ has enabled us to overcome one or two sins that were obvious nuisance, are inclined to feel, though we do not put it into words, that we are now good enough. In other words, yeah, I don't, I don't struggle with that sin or that sin. I'm good enough. He has done all we wanted him to do, and we should be obliged if he would just leave us alone now. But the question is not what we intended ourselves to be, but what he intended us to be when he redeemed us. He goes on, imagine yourself as a living house. God comes in to rebuild that house, and at first perhaps you can understand what he's doing. He's getting the drains right, and he's stopping the leaks, and the roof is fixed, and, and so on. And you knew that those jobs needed doing, and so you're not all that surprised that he's working on them. But then he starts knocking the house about in a way that hurts. And it doesn't seem to make sense. What on earth is he up to? Why is he knocking down that wall? Why is he expanding this room? And the explanation is that he is building quite a different house from the one you thought he was building. He's throwing out a new wing here. He's putting on an extra floor there. He's running up towers, making courtyards. You thought you were going to be made into a decent little cottage. But he's building a palace where he intends to come and live in himself. Jesus as Lord means that we, in our daily life, 
in our daily experience can be more than we ever imagined. Not for our purposes, not for our glory, not for our fame, not for our well-being, but for his name's sake. He's called you to be something extraordinary. And he's given you the tool to do it by his extraordinary act of the resurrection. But we minimize it. We dismiss it. We move it to the side. And so we live in a reality where Jesus Christ has risen from the grave and we can't get out of bed. Jesus is offering you today new life. Jesus is offering you power. Jesus is offering you hope, joy, peace beyond comprehension, life greater than you can imagine. Not one free of difficulties, not one that is always easy, but one that has every resource necessary to face the difficulties, the hardships, the pain. With more than just getting by, but with a power that truly overcomes. So that as Paul said, we can all become more than overcomers. This morning, if you're here and you don't have a relationship with Jesus that reflects that. He invites you to that relationship today. The cross accomplished all that's necessary. The resurrection confirmed and empowered that accomplishment. There's nothing you need to do except accept and submit. Brothers and sisters, are you walking in that power? Do you remember the deliverance he brought you through? Do you understand the life he's called you to? It's found in the reality of the resurrection. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for this day. Thank you for each person here. God, I pray that in this moment, in this time, that if there's anyone here who's never accepted you, who's never entered into that relationship, who's never submitted their life to you, God, I pray that you would draw them in your power and they would respond in faith. God, I pray for myself and my fellow believers here as well. I pray that you would help us to, to walk in the power of the resurrection, to not minimize it, to not dismiss it, to not remove it from our conscious thought and how we live and what we decide to do and where we decide to go, Lord, but to walk in it daily. Help us, Lord, to remember that and to do so through your power. Lord, use this time for your glory, for your purposes. In Christ's name, I pray.